The Bob Murphy Show, episode 187. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show and this one it was a bit of a trip down memory lane for me I recently interviewed Mario Rizzo, who was my dissertation advisor at NYU. And then that made me think, you know, why don't I go interview Gary Wolfram? So he was one of my professors at Hillsdale College, where I went to for undergrad. And then when I worked at Hillsdale later, since he was the chair of the department, I guess you could say he was my boss. So that's who we're interviewing in this particular episode of The Bob Murphy Show, Gary Wolfram who is currently the William Simon Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Hillsdale College. He's also had a bunch of other roles that he's played. He was the Chief of Staff and Senior Economist for Congressman Nick Smith of the 7th District of Michigan. He was also the Michigan State Senate Republican Policy Staff member, Senior Economist, excuse me, from 83 to 89. I'm just looking at his achievements here. He's done a lot of consulting. He's written a few books. And I think uh, he's just overall a fun guy. And I'll, I'll tell the story once we get into the discussion. But there were some key moments in terms of my own understanding of like my knowledge of free market economics and how to think about government officials. And gee, they're doing all these policies that seem at odds with what my textbook told me. How to make sense of this. And... I was very naive when I went to Hillsdale and then Gary Wolfram was one of the guys that set me straight. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Gary Wolfram. Well, Gary, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Well, thank you for having me on today. (laughs) So uh, maybe I I will have given an introduction to the audience about your background, but maybe just can you tell the story of how you got into I guess, first of all, economics, and then were you, from the beginning, were you a free market guy, or did that come later? Um, actually, I was uh, got into economics when I was an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. I found it very interesting, and I also found it very logical, and uh, so that appealed to me. And then by the time I was a junior, I had thought about maybe I wanted to become a professor one day. So I started looking into graduate school. Near the end of my junior year, I talked to some people. I applied to Harvard, MIT, and Berkeley for graduate school and ended up going to Berkeley, which was an interesting time to be there from 1972 to 1976. Mm-hmm. You might think coming, you know, from, you know, when people ask, how did you end up at Hillsdale College? from Berkeley, I would always say, well, like the Grateful Dead said, what a long, strange trip it's been. (laughs) Um, But uh, actually, uh, at the time, Berkeley was very mathematically oriented in their graduate program. So Gerard DeBrew was there and Dan McFadden. So there wasn't a lot of sort of 
public policy orientation. It was more very mathematical. Mm-hmm. And since you couldn't model government too well mathematically, um, we didn't spend a very you know a lot of time on what was going on in, for example, the sociology department or the political science department. So even though I came from Berkeley, it was a pretty mathematical background. And then I took a job in- Hey, hey Gary, uh, can I stop you? So are yeah. you saying, even though Berkeley has a reputation of being like, oh yeah, those commies, you're saying actually certain, it, in particular, the time you were there getting your PhD in economics, it was so mathematical that it wasn't that ideological. It was just more- you know, imagine a market with an infinite number of commodities in all the different states of the universe and, you know, what yes. does the price, price clearing yeah. vectors look like? Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's exactly right. We would have, you know, you'd have, you'd be talking about, uh, you know, second derivatives of the indifference curves and et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, the utility function. And so, yeah, it was mainly, mainly math proving the existence and uniqueness of competitive equilibrium, uh, that sort of thing. Okay. Okay, so I interrupted you. So then you got your PhD there, and then so by the time you got your PhD, like had you been reading Milton Friedman and stuff like that, or was that still not? No, actually, what happened was actually I uh, got my first teaching job at Mount Holyoke College, which is one of the Seven Sisters colleges. Back when it was all women and the Ivies were all men, there were and so there was a for each of the all-male Ivy League schools, there was a sister college that was an all-women's college. So I taught at Mount Holyoke for a year, and then I went to University of Michigan Dearborn, Mm -hmm. took a job there. And that was primarily because Bill Niskanen, who is basically a free market type guy who was on my dissertation committee, um, Bill had taken a job as the head of Ford Motor Company. Uh, chief economist, that is, the, the chief economist for Ford Motor, and he, which was in Dearborn. And one of my former professors from Berkeley had just taken over the dean of the uh, School of Business at U of M Dearborn. So they said, hey, you know, this would be a good place to come. And Bill said, uh, uh, Niskanen said he would probably get together with me and we'd be doing some writing together. And I thought, you know, I had never, you know, really been to the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, this will be a fun place to go. Um, but then by my third year, I was trying to make the Olympic trials in the marathon. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my other professors from Berkeley, Gary Walton, was dean of the business school at Washington State University. And at the time, they had three of the fastest 10,000-meter record holders in the world, the world record holder, the guy that had been second in the world, and then a third guy who was the third fastest 10,000 meter runner. So I called Gary and I said, hey, can I train with these guys if I go out there? Mm -hmm. So I go out there mainly to train with these Africans. And I happened to be in the library one day and I saw this book called Human Action. And I just pulled it off the shelf. And for some reason, it struck me and I started reading through it. And I opened up the chapter on markets, and it was by Ludwig von Mises, and I said, wow, this is a really good description of how markets work. (laughs) And that's how I started getting interested in basically Austrian economics, was just sort of a a random event, and I really much enjoyed it. And like I said, it very much appeals to the logic of analysis of things. Okay, I'm curious. So, if I understood you right, Bill Niskanen was at Berkeley when you were there. 
Yes, and he okay. was one of my thesis advisors. Okay. And, and it sort of time-wise was that he, when I left to go teach at Mount Holyoke, he also left to go as the chief economist for Ford Motor Company. And so right. we both okay. ended up in Dearborn, serendipity. Yeah. So now, for people who don't know, so Niskanen, he's considered one of the pioneers in public choice theory, right? Yes. Uh, yes. And he, he wrote a really good book on bureaucracy and how bureaucrats are there to increase the size of the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's their model. And, uh, and so he has, a, he has a, a whole analysis of basically why you get more government than the average person would want. And there's an incentive for government to keep getting larger. So sort of, I mean, this is dumbed down somewhat, but just like if we're going to, as economists, model entrepreneurs, they want to maximize profits, consumers or households want to maximize utility, government officials in charge of an agency want to maximize either employees or revenue, or not revenue, but budget, things like that. Yeah. Because a first approximation, that's a good way to model it. And then lo and behold, that seems to fit the data pretty well. It seems to fit the way the world works. Yes. Uh, very, very seldom do you get a, a bureau that or a department that gets smaller over time. I mean, just look at the Department of Education. It, right. And certainly it wouldn't be because the people at the top are clamoring to, hey, shrink this. Yes. Yes. Except during the Trump years, that would happen. But that's just because everything that well, was an and asterisk. The, and, the, and the Department of Education, actually, uh, Betsy DeVos was, you know, the secretary of education. And her model was not to expand education. I mean, she's mm-hmm. been very interested in school choice, particularly for uh, lower income folks. So her attitude was was different than the than the usual. But you know, there are exceptions to everything. But right, so right. in general, bureaucrats want to maximize the size of their budget, and, and that's why Betsy DeVos was treated with such civility by people on the left. During <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, so uh, I, so one thing I want you to talk a little bit about, and this might sound goofy to you, but so I was the valedictorian in eighth grade. I was a valedictorian in high school, and yet I was very shy. Kids called me Bob the Brain and stuff, and I was very, you know, like, oh, you know, you got to, like, being athletic's cool and stuff, but you got to keep, and I went to Hillsdale, and it, it was, I, I think they called it orientation week or something, but we had to go the whole, you know, all the freshmen had to go and see lectures like in the main auditorium. I forget what that's called. And the one I saw there, the first one, was you were up there talking about shortages and how in the Soviet Union, they're like they ran out of bread and stuff. And <laughs> and you were just so cool. And like, like you had, you, you let it, you had this aura that because you had studied economics, you knew how the world worked and a bunch of people out there didn't know. And you were letting us in on a secret. <laughs> and I was like, this guy's smart and he's cool too. How did, wow, you can do that. So, <laughs> well, glad that, glad that you saw it that way. Glad yeah. you saw it that way. So, I mean, joking aside, can you talk a little bit about just like what was it about economics that attracted you? And do you get what I mean? That like the physicists Certainly. are very smart and the mathematicians are very, you know, logical and rigorous, but there's something about like, economists that I think attracted us. It's like, they can tell when someone's BSing and like someone's ripping you off, like an economist is going to be the one that's going to like sniff that out. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you, uh, I mean, Tom Sowell mm-hmm. is a, uh, a really good example of somebody who can explain things in a way that the average person can understand. And I think that the economics profession 
needs to again focus a little bit more on that. I think um, that you know I have my students. I have essay questions on my exams, and mo- in fact, the majority of my questions are essay questions. And that's because I want them to be able to explain it to somebody. I don't want them to just recognize the right answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, as Mises talked about, you know, you have to win the battle of ideas. And in order to do that, you have to be able to learn to explain it in a way that the average person can understand it. And, you know, Walter Williams and Tom Sowell, um, they they are very were very good at that. I found that sort of to be my talent in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. that I enjoy being up in in front of an audience and I enjoy teaching. And so I think that that was one of the reasons I headed into the, uh, into the academic world. But then I took a leave for six years to be on the Senate policy staff in, in Michigan mm-hmm. for the, for the Republican senators. But that was pretty much teaching as well. I was explaining to the Republican senators and then later to the governor, I, I ended up also taking another leave to be uh, deputy state treasurer in Michigan for three semesters. Um, but it was very much very similar thing. I mean, I had to explain to the senator, here's why this is a good bill. This is, uh, you know, here's how you can explain it to your constituents. Um, this is why this bill is a bad idea. So it's still just a matter of, of teaching. I was never really involved in trying to get people elected on that, that sort of end of, of government. I was very much mm-hmm. on the, the policy-oriented end. But like I said, it's still a matter of explaining to people in a way they can understand it. And I think the better that we can be at that, the more chance we have to win the battle of ideas. In fact, I was just talking to my students yesterday about you know, the great communicator, Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Why was he effective in moving basically the, the, the center of, uh, of the political system towards market orientation? It was because he could explain quickly, even what he said was, right, government isn't the solution to the problem, it is the problem. Mm-hmm. And just little things like that, uh, to the extent that we could get more people that have the bully pulpit to be able to explain, you know, different topics and say, okay, let's let's just think this through for a minute, you know, like Arthur Laffey used to say, you know, it's not rocket surgery here, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, just to expand on that a little bit, Mises writes about this, but it is interesting. For for example, like quantum physics is famously hard for the layperson to understand. Like it, it doesn't make sense. I think somebody said, if you think you understand quantum physics, you've misunderstood it, or, or sorry, <laughs> if, if it makes sense to you, you've misunderstood it, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and certain people do try to explain it or whatever, and, you know, relativity maybe is more fun to try to explain. But ultimately, it doesn't matter, like, your iPhone works, you know, the whatever, that they can send stuff to Mars. It doesn't matter if the public understands it, whereas with economics, if people think raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour is going to have no downside, it is important to communicate to the public you know, it, it, do you get what I'm saying? Like for like, that, it yeah, seems like there's exactly. a reason in economics. It really is important to get the public to understand. Whereas in other fields, if if they don't understand Gödel's incompleteness theorem, doesn't really matter. Right. I think you're exactly right in that because um, because the government intervenes in the economy, and mm-hmm. if you don't understand the unintended consequences, what Mises talked about, if you don't understand the unintended consequences of 
this government action, you're going to be voting for it. You're going to, and you're, or you're going to support it and your congressman or your state, you know, assemblyman is going to vote for it. And that's going to cause all sorts of problems. And in, in um, and Mises is liberalism, one of my favorite book of his, 1927, wherein he, in 1927, he predicts the Great Depression. He predicts World War II. He predicts the fascists will start World War II. He predicts that prohibition is going to fail, all through looking at this movement away from a political philosophy of limited government and market allocation of resources towards more of an idea of central planning. And you have to be able to figure out what these unintended consequences of government action are, or you're going to be supporting all sorts of uh, government policies that lead you into a, uh, you know, into dire consequences. Mm -hmm. Now, this is interesting too about, you know, that phrase unintended consequences. We use that a lot, but just to I think it's actually a little bit more nuanced. So let me remind you of an anecdote. You, you probably don't remember this stuff, but uh, you know, I took I was taking your class. I took probably several from you, I'm sure. And I remember you were telling a story. I think it was your public choice class, actually. And you were telling a story. I'll, by the way, we used to do impressions of you. So I don't. <laughs> it's been a while, so I'll, it won't be as good. But it'd be like, uh, yeah. So I'm at the. You know, I was at these budget meetings for the school lunch funding. And uh, who do you think goes, comes up to these meetings for the testimony? It's not single mothers. No, man, it's the food vendors. Come on, you know. And, <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, and, and so the, you know, the, the seriousness there is the point that this, the way it's sold to the public is one way to say, oh, we got to have more money for school lunches because look at these poor kids can't eat. But then behind the scenes, the, the real people pushing the policies and crafting the legislation perhaps even are the big companies that are getting these huge contracts. And so it's, so it, like the unintended consequence, or like with the minimum wage, unions are for it. Th that's another example that, that I, I remember I pulled you aside after class one time and I said, oh, isn't it the case that that like these senators voting to raise the minimum wage think it's going to help, you know, uh, poor workers? And you went, no, they don't think that. You went, all right, maybe one does, but no, it's for the unions, man, come on. And I was just blown away that I had been thinking everybody was just an idiot and there was no economist on the staff of the Congress. And then later I realized, well, no, of course they have economists on staff. They know Econ 101. And it's that there's, you know, in other words, there's two things. There's the real reason they're doing stuff and then the reason they tell the public. Exactly. In fact, I also took a leave from Hillsdale after the 94 elections where the Republicans got control of the House for the first time in decades. Mm -hmm. And I had been asked by our congressman to be his chief of staff so I, I said, OK, I'll take a leave from Hillsdale because like, it was a very interesting time to be there, taking control of the House. So I went out there and um, there was an this was so this was uh, starting in uh, January of 95. And the they started a minimum wage increase again. I mean, mm -hmm. Mises talked about raising the minimum wage in 1927. So this thing's been around a long time. So uh, I had so who was showing up to talk to me, the lobbyists showing up to talk to me were the labor unions. And I said to the people that were in the labor union, I said, well, gee, um, none of your members make less than the minimum wage. Um, why are you here? And then I said, well, you're here because you want to raise the price of a substitute. The, uh, I could either, uh, you know, I could either dig a ditch with a bunch of low-skilled people and shovels or a few high-skilled people and a backhoe. Um, and so what you're here to do is to 
increase the price of a substitute for high skill labor, which is low skill labor. And once I do that, then I'm going to substitute capital for labor and I'm going to uh, demand more high skill labor. And that's why you're here. Mm-hmm. So they were a little bit taken aback <laughs> at that mm-hmm. explanation, but you know it was really true. In fact, if you look at if you look at McDonald's, for example, they're much more able to uh, deal with a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage, for example, because why? Because they can substitute kiosks. I told my students years ago um, that you know if if they're out there raising the minimum wage, what's going to happen is you're going to be sitting here walking into a, uh, you know, a restaurant and there's going to be kiosks there and rather than somebody behind the counter. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, but your local restaurant, you know, in Hillsdale, let's say Hillsdale Brewing Company, um, they, they don't have the ability to do that. And so what you'll see is that Walmart and McDonald's and the like, they're not going to be fighting the minimum wage because they can substitute capital for labor more easily than their competitors, which are the you know the smaller businesses, um, Gelter's Hardware here in Hillsdale can't have uh, self checkouts, right? Mm-hmm. They don't they don't have self checkout counter. Whereas you can go into Walmart and they'll have all sorts of you know do it your you know you do it yourself. Um, right. In fact, one thing we don't think about is how much we substitute our own labor for. For, uh, for increases in, in the wage. So, uh, for example, uh, you know, I tell my students, hey, when I was a kid, there used to be a thing called a service station. And you drove up, some person came out, they washed your windshield, they pumped your gas, you know, they, they mm-hmm. you know, took your money, gave you change, whatever, gave you, took your credit card, whatever. Today, what happens? You get out, you open up your door, you get around, you know, you pump your own gas, you wash your own windshield. Uh, and what's really happened is we've substituted the consumer's labor for the, you know, for, for the uh, uh, regular service labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that too um, back, you know, so there was a, a series of minimum wage hikes that I think George W. Bush signed into law that, you know, some of them didn't get implemented until Obama had, had come in. And, you know, so that's hitting, of course, right after the, you know, the, the Great Recession was in full swing. And I noticed, like, you're going around Walmart and you, you, you have a question and there's no one there anymore. Exactly. Like, it's, that has definitely changed. It's not just that I'm turning to a cranky old man. and I, I mean, <laughs> it really used to be the case. If you had a question, there were employees. I mean, they might not know the answer, but at least you could ask somebody. And yes. now, like, you can go searching high and low and there's no employees anywhere. And that that's not just, oh, that's the way business is. It's, no, that's the way business is when you make cheap labor, not so cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you, do you have any specifics? Cause I was doing some research on this proposed $15 per hour, um, minimum wage hike and it like comparing it to the the last one. I, I think these numbers are right, but the last one that b- before it started kicking in, like if you asked in 2007, how many workers were making less than what, you know, the, what was going to be 725 is where it was going to head towards. I think it was like 4%. And now if you ask how many workers make less than 15, I think it's like 19% or something like that. So just, in other words, this isn't just another example. And I believe in inflation adjusted terms, this is will be the highest it's been in, in history. So I'm not telling you to verify the, like in case I'm, I'm pretty sure those are true facts, but in general, have you looked at all at, the, at this proposed hike? 
Yeah, if you look, well, uh, actually in 2019, the Congressional Budget Office put out mm -hmm. a study um, saying it was going to uh, probably about one and a half million job loss. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you even if you think about it, Walter Williams had a piece called Minimum Wage Maximum Folly mm -hmm. back in 2007. And the um, it's still there. If you and one of the things I like to bring up with my students is that let's just think about this for a minute. If you can't produce $15 an hour worth of revenue for me, I can't pay you $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. How can I possibly pay people $15 an hour when I'm only getting $10 an hour worth of revenue? Right? Just logically, I've got to go out of business doing that. So it means that I'm not going to hire people unless they can produce the $15 an hour that you have under this minimum wage. Now, the question then is, if we raise the minimum wage from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour, who, some people will retain their, their jobs, right? Not everybody's going to get laid off. Um, and in the long run, you'll have larger layoffs because you'll have time to substitute uh, capital, uh, you know, robots, kiosks, everything for labor. In the short run, it might it will not be as much, but still, there's going to be people losing their jobs. So the question, and I also published a piece called, um, why not have a $300 an hour minimum wage? Mm -hmm. I mean, why are you being stingy? Mm -hmm. You know, if we can just make it $15 an hour, let's make it $300 an hour. Um, if you made it 300, if, if I proposed, you know, if I were a senator and proposed a $300 an hour minimum wage, people would get it, right? Right. Say, oh, no, that's, that, that's impossible. But, but at $15 an hour, the question then becomes, who loses? Who's the person that doesn't get that job that they otherwise would have had? Or who's the person that will lose their job? Well, it's somebody that's low skilled. Who is that going to be? That's going to be a person who is in the lower socioeconomic status right now, the people that you claim that you're helping. If you are a, uh, if you're an 18-year-old, you just graduated from Detroit Public Schools, can you walk in and start producing $15 an hour worth of product in, in your first job? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So how do you get job skills? How do you raise your productivity. I mean, in 1927, Mises talked about this. He said, look, let's let's think about this for a minute. The only way that you can increase people's wages is increase the value of what they produce. How do you do that? Because if they get job skills, they get better at the job or they get, uh, you didn't have computers back then, but, you know, machinery. And, and nowadays we would talk about computers and et cetera, all the things that add to your productivity. But if I can't get that first job, how do I gain those skills? Now, think about who's going to get that first job. Now, I tell my students, listen, most of you probably got those job skills and you got paid zero. And what do we call that? What do we call a job where you get paid zero and you learn to work on the job? Internship. Yes, internships. Okay. Um, now, is that single mom with three kids in East Los Angeles or her kids going to get the internship with Johnson & Johnson? No. And so 
this this is going to harm the people most that you think that you're benefiting. It's going to be the people that, you know, like I said, that, you know, single mom with three kids in East Los Angeles, her kids that are graduating from Compton High School or something, um, they're not going to be able to get that first job. And then if they can't get that first job, you can't get it in the in, in the legal sector, where do you head, right? You're going to head towards illegal occupations, aren't you? Right, right. Right? And so you get all sorts of what I, you know, Mises talking about, unintended consequences, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that all start from, so because you haven't thought this thing through. And I think that's an important point of what economics allows you to do is to think these things through. Yeah, there was, I don't know if you ever saw it, Gary, the, um, the, some guy that like, he would do interviews with people and start out normal, but then he would kind of ambush them with like awkward questions. And he was, interv- I believe it was Nancy Pelosi. It was certainly like a, a high ranking female democratic politician. And I think it was Pelosi and asking her about the minimum wage and why she would, and then he asked about, you have interns working here, right? And, oh yeah. And, and how much do you pay them? He's like, <laughs> well, no, see, they come here to get valuable experience for the, da, da, da. and he just kept like, he was playing dumb. That's and exactly just kept, right. Her, yeah. And it was, it was hilarious to see her like doing mental gymnastics, like, you know, the flip flop of, you couldn't possibly let kids, you know, it'd be unconscionable for businesses to take advantage of cheap labor, making less than the minimum wage. And then she's talking about, oh, yeah, the kids gain from us paying them nothing while they, you know, make copies for us. What are you talking about? So it's pretty good. And, um, and, and that, and, and that is the point though. They, they mm-hmm. will be able to have on their resume, you know, this, and they will go out and get the job. Uh, and, and, you know, this, this is, you know, um, in the first, uh, Sherlock Holmes story, um, uh, Watson is walking by and he sees Sherlock up in the, uh, up, up in his uh, apartment and, uh, he decides to go see him. He walks up the stairs, knocks on the door. Sherlock has him in for a while, and they're talking. And then uh, Sherlock just says, uh, Watson, how many steps are there coming up from the ground floor? And Watson goes, well, geez, I don't know. And Sherlock says, Watson, how many times have you come up these steps? And Watson says, well, hundreds of times. He says, Watson, there are 17 steps coming up the ground floor. The problem with you, Watson, is you see, but you don't observe. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the focuses of my classes. I want people to see and observe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, part of the problem in the uh, public policy arena is people see, but they don't observe. They see this $15 an hour increase in the minimum wage, and they go, wow, that's going to be a lot better for all these people that are making less than the minimum wage. They don't observe that kid that never got his first job or she never got her first job because they, she couldn't make the $15 an hour worth of stuff. Yeah, and that's an important thing because I think a lot of people believe that what you're saying or me are saying is like, oh no, some people are just going to be earning you know, $13 an hour forever. And it's like the point, no, that you get that first job and then you advance up, up the ladder. But like if you're a young kid, especially, or if on paper you don't have any job experience, it's risky for an employer to hire you you know, give you a uniform, give you the trainings, like a more experienced person has to work less in order to start training you. And you don't want to, like, there's a lot of things and it could go wrong. And so if instead of paying the person seven twenty-five an hour, now they got to pay him 15, that's just an extra hurdle to take that gamble to see if it works, you know, pay, pays off down the road. So it doesn't mean you're, conf- 
confined to earning the minimum wage for the rest of your life. Like you would move up the ranks if you're good. But like you're saying, you can't ever even get a shot if if that first hurdle is too high. Yes. And and actually what will happen is as you get job skills, you'll you'll be more productive. And as you get more productive, then you'll like, we'll pay you more. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is, you, you, you can't force employers to hire people. You could enforce them, you, you could force them to pay $15 an hour, but you can't force them to hire people. And, you know, if you just draw a regular old demand and supply curve for labor, um, you will notice that as you have a wage above equilibrium, you're going to bang into the demand curve before you get over mm-hmm. to the supply curve, and you're going to have a, 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 a less people employed than you otherwise than you otherwise would have. And if we sort of think through this, we'll notice that um, this will have all sorts of other effects as well in terms of the the relative price of uh, of certain goods. And to think through that. It might be in Seattle or San Francisco that the equilibrium wage right now might be $15 an hour, mm-hmm. and it won't have any effect. I can tell you in Hillsdale, the equilibrium wage is not $15 an hour. And if our local restaurants have to start paying $15 an hour, they're going to they're, they're go away. Um, and all we'll have is McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's what we'll have. Yeah, that's a, you know, besides the economics of it, uh, an argument for federalism, it really is amazing. Like, why does there need to be a federal floor? Like, wh- that, why wouldn't you just let each state decide that? Especially if people are like, oh, because it's so unconscionable. And this, okay, well, if it's so obvious, then you wouldn't expect the voters in a whole state to do something monstrous if in your book, you know, we got to have a decent wage. And like you say, in some areas, the, the median wage is, is real high, in others, it's low. And yet, we have the same federal floor all over the place. It's just, that's kind of crazy. Even even on its own terms, even if you thought it made sense to mm-hmm. have a minimum wage, why? I mean, you wouldn't want to have the UN set a minimum wage for planet Earth. Right. That, would cl- that would clearly be crazy. And so, you know, why would you do that, you know, from Washington, D.C.? Um, do you, let's see here. Can we pivot? I'm curious, you, you mentioned, I did want to ask you about your time in Michigan politics. Was, did, did your understanding of, of the political system change like from being in it and, and dealing with it? I, it was more in a, a question of observing. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been teaching uh, public choice, which is using economic analysis to study, the, study how the political structure works. Um, and one of my former students um, was, uh, had, had been the uh, chief of staff to one of the senators in Lansing, and he called me and said, hey, there's an opening here on the Senate policy staff. Uh, and why don't you come up here and see how government really works? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, hey, that's, that's not a bad idea. Um, and so it, it did. It was a matter of observing, uh, okay, um, you know, all the things that you, that you learn about or think about in economics becomes clear. For example, um, people are what we call rationally ignorant. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend time thinking about things or learning about things as long as the added benefit to me is bigger than the added cost. Well, um, what's the added benefit to me of knowing what is in the Affordable Care Act? That's 2,500 pages. Near zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether 
you know, if I understand it completely, am I really going to be able to keep it from passing or not passing or whatever? And so what happens is that in the political structure, um, as as Mises pointed out in 1927, he said uh, in, in the book Liberalism, he said that in reality, we're governed by a, uh, a, a ruling elite. Um, and he says, he says that um, the way to protect ourselves from government becoming Leviathan uh, is, the, the, he says, the unanimous opinion of the people. That is, you got to go out and win the battle of ideas. You, you don't need to know what is in any particular bill, um, but you need to know is, you know, we need to figure out once government starts intervening, let's think through what's going to happen. Um, and the uh, once you understand that the the um, how the political structure works, you're going to be thinking, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have government doing a whole lot of stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Um the, the, the less your government is capable of doing or is able to do, um, the more it's constrained by your constitution, Hayek's constitutional liberty, um, then it doesn't matter significantly whether you got that right or wrong in terms of who you elected, right? Um, it's when government can do all sorts of stuff, then it really matters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and again, we just have to realize when you when you're thinking about it, you've got when you're asking people to vote on uh, you know vote on you know their senator, their state rep, wherever. I even say to my students, how many of you can tell me what committees your state senators sit on? Not one of them can raise the, They have no idea what committees. They probably can't even name the state senators. They can't even name, yes. It's and it's sort of funny. You'd think that since you're closer to your state senator than you are to your U.S. senator, um, people sometimes know who their U.S. senator is, mm. but seldom do they know who their state rep or, or state senator is. So once you start thinking about that, hmm, I've got these people that are being elected by rationally ignorant people. Um, should we give them all sorts of things for them to be able to do, or should we maybe limit what they can do? Yeah. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the discussion to mention that if you are interested in the infinite banking concept or IBC, but you never really looked into it, you may have heard me mention it, we have a video series that's up. It's been up for a few months now, but just in case you missed it, it's called The Foundations of IBC. So it's just short little 10 to 15 minute chunks of video where Carlos Lara, David Stearns, and I take turns teaching on relevant aspects of IBC. We start at the beginning and assume you know nothing and go through the basics. And uh, I think you should give it a shot. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash foundations to see the free video series that's now online. Also too, it's uh, like another example of that dichotomy is the standard person on the left was claiming for four years that Donald Trump was, you know, Hitler, almost literally. And they also wanted single payer. Right, and, you know, and it's like if you just agreed that our system allowed Hitler to be elected, why would you want to have Washington control healthcare? You know, yeah. No, no. Next time we'll just make sure we'll be more vigilant next time because now <laughs> we don't want another fascist. You know, until once we get healthcare in in the hands of Washington, so it just it's interesting that they could hold both views simultaneously. Um, so I, I mean, an example of what I, what I was thinking 
is I only briefly interacted in the in the public. So I've testified a few times for, in DC, and there it's like you know ahead of time what the questions are going to be, and it like that stuff often is just putting on a show for the cameras. It's not, and I you know and you have people on the other side asking me hard questions, and I go to answer. And they're just talking to their aides and they're not even listening to me. You know what I mean? Like they just want to be on camera asking me that tough question. They don't care what my answer is. Uh-huh. It's not like it's not there. And the other one I have is I wrote a, a study for Pacific Research Institute years ago on a, on a flat um, state income tax for California. Uh-huh. And there was a state rep who read it and he loved the report. You know, I flew, I was like, yeah, I flew out there to meet the, you know, the guy's office. And he he understood it. Like it, he wasn't just liking the bullet point summary. Like he really understood the logic of the of the you know the the study. And he and he was an, a newly elected person. And he wanted to push it through. And his chief of staff, like during the course of our half hour meeting, his chief of staff convinced him that you know no sir, this won't even get out of committee. The Republicans won't support this. All this will you know this won't go anywhere. If you introduce something based on this study, it will just hurt you when you go up for reelection. And by the end of it, he's like, well, thanks so much for visiting Dr. Murphy and I'll be in touch. And I never heard from the guy again. And, it, and the thing was, his chief of staff wasn't wrong. Like, I, I kind of, like, right. yeah, I see what you're saying. And I yes, mean, so that was just... That's why you need the great communicator. You need somebody mm-hmm. to go out there and be able to explain it. Um, or you need to be able to explain it to your neighbors. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if, if everybody thought through this minimum wage, if they could explain it to their neighbors then your state senator, your U.S. congressman, whatever, they would not vote for an increase in the minimum wage if their constituency uh, doesn't want it. So there is a matter of winning this battle of ideas. And that's that's a difficult thing to do. Um, uh, you know, it's I think it's very interesting how uh, social media works today. I mean, that's uh, well beyond what it was back in the 1970s when I was in graduate school. Um, mm. But uh, I, I've, I find that interesting how, um, how social media uh, works within the political arena. And I, I don't have an idea of, um, you know, I don't have a- any uh, judgment on it, but I just, I'm curious as to uh, how social media influences um people's decisions and does it uh, divide the country more or less or um, or whatever. Yeah, I think among other things, like for sure, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think is a bigger deal among Democrats because of social media than she would have been before. Like, I, and I, I think, you know, when she was first elected, it comes in and she's a hot shot and, you know, and I think she was maybe rubbing some people the wrong way, including Pelosi, but she was more of a force because she had, she was able to, to use Twitter better than mm-hmm. other people, you know, who, who are like, what, what is this thing? What is this Twitter? Yeah. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit? I know you have your book on a, a capitalist manifesto. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, basically it is to uh, uh, basically have a simple explanation of how markets work. Um, you know, the, what we just talked about, you know, there's a, de- a demand for labor and a supply of labor. Uh, and if you try to set the price where it's uh, above equilibrium, you're going to have a quantity supplied bigger than quantity demanded, and that's going to be unemployment. Uh, or if the government sets a, um, a minimum, uh, excuse me, a maximum price, says, okay, you can't, tr- th- th- we have a price gouging law. 
okay, you can't charge more than uh, you know two dollars and fifty cents per gallon for gasoline when the hurricane is getting here. Well, what will happen? There's going to be a shortage. Uh, at $2.50, more people are going to want to buy gasoline than they did before, but you can't force suppliers to supply it. And so you'll end up with a shortage. So I go through just some of the basics of simple demand and supply analysis. And then um, I talk about, uh, we basically, Mises is liberalism um, mm-hmm. that we've, you know, I've been referencing. Um, and what political philosophy is necessary for market capitalism to work and what sort of things you need to, like you have to believe in freedom and you have to believe in property rights, et cetera. So we go through and I, uh, and I analyze uh, basically Mises' liberalism book. Um, then I go to uh, a nice little book called The Law by Bastiat, where looking at, uh, in, in the law, he's looking for what, what is a just government. Um, and you know, he basically says, uh, we have a natural right to self-defense, um, and government is the collective organization of that natural right. Like, why do we form government in the first place? Right. We form government to protect ourselves. And so what does a just government do? A just government does what it's supposed to do. It doesn't start taking away your property rights. It doesn't tell you, um, that you can't work, uh, if you want to work at $10 an hour, if you'd like to do that, it doesn't tell you, oh, no, 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 you can't do that, right? Um, it can't seize your property and use it to fund uh, uh, some government program, right? That is, he doesn't say there's, uh, obviously, it's not both Mises, Bastiat, Hayek. There is a proper role for government, no question. Uh, Mises, in, in fact, one of the things I talk about in the Capitalist Manifesto is Mises makes clear that classical liberals are not anarchists. You, mm-hmm. you do need, they're not pure libertarians like a Murray Rothbard. You need to have a government to protect yourself from other, you know, invasion of your property rights by other people. But that's what government ought to be limited to. Once the government goes beyond that, for Mises, it causes unintended consequences. For, um, for Bastiat, it's, an un, it's unjust. That's, that's not what government's supposed to do. Um, and then I talk about uh, Hayek's Constitution of Liberty, um, which is a great book um, where the idea is that uh, he says, emphasizes the fact that information is decentralized. How can I possibly know if I am the central planner? Uh, how can I possibly know how many hot dogs Bob Murphy's going to want next week and Gary Wolfram's going to want? Uh, and how many resources ought to go into making hot dogs versus making sauerkraut? Um, I can't possibly know that. Uh, and so this problem of decentralized information, Hayek emphasizes, what you need to solve that problem is people to act according to their own plan because they know more about what they want than anybody else. Uh, and so what that works is a, you know, that's how markets work, a system of voluntary exchange. Um, you decide whether you want to buy that hot dog or you don't buy the hot dog. Or you decide whether you're going to work at Walmart or not work at Walmart. Um, and one of the things I emphasize is that it's a system of voluntary exchange. That is, um, if I see you working at Walmart, then I know that the next best use of your time had to be worth less than what Mr. Walmart's paying you. Otherwise Mm -hmm. you wouldn't be there. You know, I tell my students, I'm not, you know, in Hillsdale, we don't have vans driving around, picking people up and taking them to the Walmart and chaining them to the 
to the, you know to the checkout counter. Okay, right. uh, and nor did they throw all the stuff in your cart and make you pay for it when you go out. So I talk about that in, uh, and, and then I uh, then how do we limit the government then? Once we've got a role for government, how do we limit it? And that, of course, is the title: Constitution of Liberty, a written constitution. Um, and uh, th- then I close um, with a, uh, a a section on how, based on a book called How the West Grew Rich. So we went from f- feudalism. We lived for centuries with nothing going on. Uh, you know, if you've seen Monty Python's Holy Grail, you'll see what it looked like in you know 1263. Um, then we start getting the trading cities, and we go through mercantilism, and then middle of the 18th century, we go to market capitalism, and boom. Economic growth just goes up exponentially. Um, and then I close at the end with uh, uh, a chapter on Austrian uh, economics, and in particular, the Austrian business cycle. Oh, I do I do also have a little bit of uh, macroeconomics, just mm-hmm. Keynesian economics, but just enough so that you could understand why Barack Obama had a stimulus package, why the Federal Reserve tries to keep interest rates down. So, so you understand the Keynesian model, um, and then I have a Austrian business cycle alternative to that at the end. Okay, great. Uh, it's funny on the hot dog one. I worked at a, a grocery store in high school and then even college in summers. I can't remember if I had taken your class when this incident happened, but there was a Fourth of July uh, weekend, and so the I worked in the dairy department, and so that they're the ones that stock the hot dogs. Uh-huh. And the man, you know, the manager's on vacation, and so left the assistant manager in charge. And the and the guy didn't order enough hot dogs because he had never been in charge of the. He didn't realize, you know, because they were running a sale, you know, two for ones, waggles. Right. And we literally ran out of hot dogs. It was the Fourth of July, so the store manager, of course, you know, was having a heart attack. And what we ended up doing though was like one of the kids called our sister store, and they had a bunch, and so he got in his car and drove down and filled his <laughs> trunk with hot dogs. And so there was like you know a, a two hour period when our store was out of hot dogs and it was like a tragedy. And the next year, like the man, the store manager, like three weeks ahead of time is telling that assistant manager of the dairy department, Gary, we're not going to run out of hot dogs this year. Are we? No, sir. No, sir. (laughs) And of course he ordered a mountain of hot dogs to make sure, but like that's contrasting like with, you know, under socialism when, you know, people are waiting in line for bread and other things like this was like, that's what happens under capitalism. If one person screws up, one store might be out of one item for a few hours and the, like, and right. people are outraged and right. yet, you know, so that's, well, I think it was a good. In fact, I, I come in and I say probably 20 times during the semester, 9 million people woke up in New York city today and there was exactly the right amount of Starbucks coffee and exactly mm-hmm. the right amount of donuts and exactly the right of peanuts and everything else. And the same thing happened in Baltimore and Philadelphia and there's no one in charge. How in the world does that happen? That is the purpose of this course. <laughs> right, right. That, that is good stuff. So I've got just a few minutes here left with you. Do you mind explaining? So I, you're, I take it you're not an anarcho-capitalist either? You No, no. Do you, there do you, there have, is a role for government. Okay, so do you mind talking? Like, have you read like David Friedman and Rothbard and when they make sure. their case for that? Okay, so do yeah. you want to explain why they didn't convince you? Well, I mean... Um, Rothbard's For New Liberty actually has some very interesting ideas about what the world would look like if you didn't have a government. So, for mm-hmm. example, that um, the uh, the insurance companies would 
hire private police to make sure that th things didn't stolen and that kind of thing. Um, I think the mechanics of that is just too far gone. I think you you have um, too much free rider problems where, mm. you know, if uh, you're going to pay for the police, uh, why do I need to pay for the police? They're going to protect me. Uh, you know, they're not going to just protect your house. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, you could have private, you could have private, uh, police, but there's, um, I just don't think mechanically it could possibly work. It's a nice theory and it gives you mm -hmm. a way of thinking through things, but I don't think that, uh, you could actually implement such a thing. So, and so I think Mises is, and, and Hayek are more, um, have, have, have a better sense of what it would actually look like. Uh, and saying, you know what, you're just going to have to have somebody to protect us. And if you sort of think about it, um, that's an efficient way to do that, right? Rather than me having to stay home and protect my house, uh, what do I do? You know, we have a government and we hire police and the police go out and do that. Now, of course, there's all sorts of problems with um, when, you know, where is the government actually protecting life, liberty, and property? Like, where is it going beyond that bound, right? It's not always a clear definition. Clearly, police are, um, but what if it's, um, uh, you know, what what if it's called what we call externalities? That is, you're out there and uh, you are, um, uh, you, you know, you're creating global, you know, you're putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere when you're driving your car around, and that's them, you know, melting the polar ice caps and causing mm. people in India to get flooded and da 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 right? So, mm. you know, there's there's not a clear division. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in my uh, public choice class and my public finance class is, okay, let's think through what direction should we be going? Here's not the exact right answer, but this, the, as if we, you know, we really can't probably figure out what the, what the, external cost that you're imposing on the rest of it is, but it tells you, well, hey, maybe uh, a way to deal with such a situation would be to uh, to have a, uh, a carbon tax as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, some, uh, you know, government regulation. Uh, so again, trying to just work through these things. And I, I just don't think that if we just left it up to, let's just all stand back and hope that it's all going to work out. Right. I think there's too many people that would take advantage of that. So we can just sit back and let coffee work itself out. But you're saying there's something intrinsically different about the nature of security or judicial Correct. services yes. opposed to yes. coffee. Yes, exactly. Particularly where you have goods that are what we call non-rival in consumption. That is mm -hmm. my consumption of it doesn't affect your consumption of it, like defense. OK, right. right. Um, if we have one more one more house, my anti-ballistic missile system, it doesn't reduce the amount of anti-ballistic missile system there is for you if, mm -hmm. if I build a house next to yours. And so there's, you know, there's certain characteristics of goods. And I think there's a good deal of that aspect to to protecting protecting property rights. Uh, I, I just think that, yeah, I mean, maybe we'd all hire people, but I just I think there's too many too much interaction where what happens if you don't uh, you know you don't protect your house mm -hmm. they show up you know and steal my pat my Amazon package that showed up on my front front yard or something right right 
Okay, so it's just to summarize then it you you do think like you you subscribe to the public private goods distinction like in the the way economists use those terms. Yes. And so you think that yeah there's certain like private goods clearly markets are better at providing those and even though with government provision like in other words the problems we just outlined for the whole discussion about school lunch programs and other things that still would be plaguing government provision but you're saying that those flaws are trumped by the downside of private provision when it comes to police and military defense. Yes, yes. When we're talking about prote actual protecting property rights, mm -hmm. um, I do think that's why we formed a government. In the, I mean, that's what Bass Jot says um, mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, 1780s. You know, we formed government in order to protect ourselves. And and that seems to be a, a proper role for government. And then, of course, how do you keep it from becoming Leviathan? Uh, right. You know, you have, you have a written constitution and people have to believe that government ought to be limited. Right. I mean, if you think that it's a role for government to uh, educate everybody, well, that's going beyond the protection of life, liberty and property. That's not not the role of government to go out and educate people. Now, you might mm -hmm. argue, but then, you know, then you might argue that, well, there's a positive externality to having kids be educated or things like that. So again, there's not a, you know, I don't teach my students as a bright line where this is clear. It's to give you a way of, of thinking through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, if you're going to tell me that the government ought to be educating people, that is taxing you to pay for my kids to go to school, if that's the way you're gonna, if you're gonna believe that, then you have to explain why there's a positive externality. You've got to explain to me Okay, why is it somehow that I am not capturing all the benefits of my education through my labor or anything else, whatever, that somehow there's benefits that are going to other people that aren't being picked up in the price system? So if, if you're going to explain, you can't just say, oh, well, poor kids ought to be educated, right? Mm -hmm. That's not an explanation. So right. at least it moves you to where if you're going to have government do something, you have to explain either that it's protecting property rights, or there's something wrong with the price system in that it's not picking up either external costs on somebody else or external uh, benefits on somebody else. Like if you ever saw the movie Gran Torino, mm -hmm. well, what happens is uh, that the kid uh, has to work for him. And what he does is doesn't have the kid fix his house. He has, it, has him paint the house across the street, right? Because that is going to improve the value of his property. And so that, you know, that that's an example of th there's not a real good mechanism for you to pay your neighbor to mow their lawn when you got your house for sale. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of it gets solved through culture. You know, I, you know, I tell my students, for example, we're talking about um, when we're talking about when can you mow your lawn on a Saturday morning, right? You got your lawnmower out and you're mowing your lawn, but you're also creating noise pollution for your neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. And the, so how do we deal with that? That is your noise pollution. You don't have to pay for it. We sort of do it through the culture. And I'll ask them, how many think you should be able to mow your lawn at seven o'clock on Saturday morning? Nobody raises their hand, right? Eight o'clock, nobody raises their hand. Nine o'clock, most people will raise their hand, right? right? Yeah. 10 o'clock. No question. For sure. Right. right. 
So uh, again, it's just to give you a way to think through things. And I think that's what economics is about. It's, it's about a, a way of thinking through different things and being able to think through in a logical manner and to see the unintended consequences of, of what, what actions mm-hmm. are. Okay, well, great. Uh, so why don't we wrap it up there? Uh, so folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 187 for the links to uh, Gary's book and all these other topics we've talked about. My guest has been uh, Gary Wolfram. Gary, thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. Good luck with your podcast. <laughs> thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.